The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. What an exciting show we have for you today. It's Lucky 13, the 13th episode in our 13-week series called Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP Services. So let's get started. The future is coming. On June 3rd, the future of business that is. Let me tell you a little bit about it before I tell you about our format and our panelists. Digital, social, mobile, and cloud technologies are disrupting how we collaborate, create, and communicate at work and in our personal lives as well. Innovations born from networked interactions between people, businesses, and things are transforming business models and economic systems around the world. They're changing the rules for everything we do. And cloud computing has quickly become a driving force for unprecedented change across the IT and business landscapes. So for the past 12 weeks on here on Future of Business with Game Changers, we have explored where business is headed. Now I can tell you for a fact it's heading to Orlando, Florida. It is. Today we're going to hear from uh, eight SAP thought leaders about what's happening in the future of business at Sapphire Now in Orlando. We'll talk about the future of work, the networked economy, and cloud 2020. And you know that's a favorite year of mine. We'll talk about the key aspects of innovation that will help your company and how not to end up under the bus. That's one place you don't want to be. So let me introduce my first panel. We have two up four times. We're going to have eight people talking, a lot packed into this show. First up, I'm welcoming back to the show Carrie Brown. She's an SAP evangelist and thought leader, of course, and head of strategy and alliances Americas. And joining Kerry will be Dr. Stephen Hunt, VP of Customer Research at Success Factor. So, Kerry, let's queue up with you. Welcome, Kerry. And I'm going to read your quote from the late Maya Angelou, who just left us yesterday, unfortunately. You say, when you learn, teach. When you get, give. Welcome, Kerry Brown. Talk to me about your quote, please. Thank you, Bonnie. And, and certainly, I think it's timely given the, the impact and legacy that Maya left for us. But when I look at the themes that we're talking about next week of everyone's a learner, everyone's a teacher, anywhere, all the time, I think she had embodied that in our whole life, and we're really looking at that in the same way where technology brings our whole life together. So the opportunity for us individually and as a collection of people in our companies to really change the way we impact each other I think is quite significant. 
good disruption. Thank you very much, Carrie. Stephen Hunt, I'm going to bring in your quote right now, and then we'll go into our roundtable. We're really compressed for time today, and let's do it. So Stephen Hunt sent me the following quote from his book, Common Sense Talent Management. Here's the quote. Few things impact happiness more than having meaningful and fulfilling work and a high-quality work environment. Despite the value of high-quality work environments, workplaces are so frequently mismanaged, uh uh-huh, he said that, that there is even a genre of humor, oh my goodness, devoted solely to making fun of office life. I'm not laughing, but maybe I should. Stephen Hunt, welcome. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you. Thanks for um, joining. Talk to me about the quote. Very interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the quote really was when I wrote this book, Common Sense Talent Management. Um, one of the things that has really bothered me as I started thinking about it is that <clears throat> bad management doesn't just hurt companies. It hurts people. It hurts customers. It hurts their family. It hurts the whole world. Yet we tolerate it like though it was the bad weather. I mean, we kind of make jokes about it. There's cartoons. And why I find this stuff funny, it's also tragic because this stuff really matters. It really Poor management, poor work environments really do hurt people, um, both emotionally and financially. And the tragic part is we know how to manage effectively. So we could we could stop it, but we don't because a lot of companies just simply tolerate it as though there was nothing they could do about it. And the good news is that's changing, but um, it's something that I'd, I'd like to see us eventually get away from, to say, you know, making a joke about a bad manager is making a joke about somebody who's really, really probably hurting themselves and hurting others in real significant ways. Stephen, where is the change coming from? Is it coming from a groundswell up from the bottom or down from the top? Or I know we're going to talk in a moment about millennials. Why don't we, you save the answer to my question. Let's get into our talking points. And Carrie Brown, I'm going to start with you. You sent me in your notes. You say everyone is a learner. Everyone is a teacher and learning happens anywhere and all the time. So let's apply this to your opening quote from Maya Angelou as well as to what Steve Hunt's talking about. Go ahead, Carrie. I think to Stephen's comment of, you know, a working environment is somewhere that you seek to have a positive experience and often coworkers are what makes a bad manager tolerable because you do collectively come together and that's really where I look at it in terms of everyone's a learner, everyone's a teacher. Traditionally roles were much more fixed and there was the manager was in charge and everybody did what the manager said and now you see a much more shared responsibility across organizations to be self-sufficient and or fend for yourself depending on how you want to look at that but also our ability to share and the technology we have that facilitates that sharing in a more effective and meaningful way can change how easy or hard it is to do our job and how easy or hard it is to learn and to contribute to others in terms of being a teacher. So that flexibility and that fluidity, I think, are changing those traditional roles very much so to where I can be a bit of the the shaper of my own destiny as well as the destiny of everyone who works around me based on how I contribute and how I consume. Thank you, Kerry. Very well put. Steve Hunt, thoughts on what Kerry just talked to us about? Yeah, I, I think I'd build on that. You know, sort of one, I do agree that the, sometimes employees sort of find solace in their coworkers. But I think going back to what you said earlier, why is this changing? I think that there's two things that are happening that's changing. One is just the growing scarcity of skilled labor and the fluidity of labor, um, given sort of the way organizations are virtually staffed and global now. High-performing, high-skilled people are in demand. They're scarce, and if they don't like where they work, they can leave. It's much, much easier now than it was. So this creates Mm -hmm. demand to create a a better quality work environment. And the other thing that's happening at the same time, and thankfully, is because of technology, we're able to use the information we've had for quite a long time around what it takes to do effective management. 
Um, but we just didn't use that knowledge because it was kind of locked up in journal articles. Technology now is allowing us to get that in the hands of managers, as well as to actually monitor what managers are doing, not in a negative way, but just sort of visibility and are you effectively engaging with your people? Are you setting clear goals, giving them good feedback, helping them with their career development so that we make better managers? So these two things kind of coming together. The, the problem is more acute with bad management, mm -hmm. but we also have better solutions at the same time. And these two things are coming together to actually create better work environments on the positive side. If you look at the quality of work environments now, it's much better than it was 30 years ago, especially for non, well, it used to be non-traditional, now it's not, now it's uh, typical, you know, employees, you know, such as, you know, working women, um, which, you know, 50 years ago it was much worse to be a woman in the workforce than it is now, and now That's most right. of the workforce is women. So. It's getting much better, but we have a long way to go, too. Okay, Steve, that's a great segue to a talking point I was about to cue up from your notes, and you say the real challenge is around growing diversity, the growing diversity in the workplace. Every, and another thing I want you to bring up, please, is the move to global virtual workplaces, which is changing the nature, the tone, where are we when we work. I'm in my home office right now hosting SAP Radio with an, office, an audience in 130 countries and regions around the world. So it has changed. How do you manage this kind of Scenario. Steve, why don't you start, and then we'll get Carrie Brown's words of wisdom. Yeah, I'll start with the diversity. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of discussion mm -hmm. around millennials and um, what we need to do to engage millennials. I think that's kind of missing it. Yes, it's important to look at younger employees, but companies have been employing younger employees for a long time. We've always hired people in their 20s. The real challenge is now we've got like five generations in the workforce. People are working into their 70s. We've never employed large numbers of people in their 60s and 70s before, but mm -hmm. we need to because, again, the scarcity of skilled labor and the fact that people are healthy, they want to work, they want to be productive. So finding how we manage these different needs of people at different career stages and life stages who are still very very much active and need to be active members of the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really critical, as well as, you know, this global nature, too, because, again, it's, it's all driven by skill scarcity. Uh, companies need to be able to find talent where it is and engage it where it is, and that's requiring managing virtual organizations. And, again, the old traditional concepts of management, you know, management by walking around, for example, doesn't work if half your employees are on another continent. Mm -hmm. So people having to rethink what is the nature of the working relationship, sort of how we're rethinking the nature of social connections now that we have some virtual social technology, you know, you can have very close friends, people you work with, that you may, may never actually see, which is very different from where we were, you know, just very, you know, 10 years ago. You speak a lot of truths. I want to get Carrie Brown's input on the topic of diversity and the global virtual workplace. Carrie, thoughts? A couple of thoughts, actually. As, as Stephen was talking, it made me think of the multi-generational family homes that exist in different parts of our, our world when you talk about all the different countries we live in and how you find harmony across those multi-generations changes. And it, it also brings me to the reverse mentoring concept and how you bring together people who have a lot of gifts to give each other and a lot of knowledge to share that can really change the capabilities of everybody across generations. It, it's interesting, next week at, at Sapphire, Oxford Economics will be sharing their Workforce 2020 research, and we just did a quick preview of that this morning. And it was interesting how much the millennials they were speaking about is, is a fallacy of how different they are or aren't, and maybe they're a lot more similar than we realize that they are in talking about what makes them stay or leave in a workplace and what they need and demand. So it'll be exciting to explore that further next week as well.
Very much. And for those of you just tuning in, this is a special. It's the 13th edition of our 13-week series called Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP Services. And a shout-out to Dave Fowler, sponsor of this series. We are wrapping it up with The Future of Business Arrives in Orlando. I'm talking right now with Carrie Brown and Dr. Stephen Hunt about the future of work. This is our first segment, and it's a preview of the future of business arriving in Orlando, Orlando, Florida. That's the home place of... Sapphire Now Orlando, uh uh-huh, and that's happening next week on June 3rd. We're going to be hearing from a lot more thought leaders. Carrie Brown, it's time for me to ask you to fast forward to 2020, my favorite year. Hindsight is blank, blank, blank. And if we were to talk about the future of work and the topics you and Stephen have been discussing in 2020, of course, I hope we'll meet again in six years, what would you be saying? What do you think is going to happen in the intervening years? I'll give you one minute for your wrap-up and one minute for Stephen Hunt. So go ahead, Carrie Brown. I think everything that we see now as being a little bit cutting edge will be old hat. So as you lead into the next segment of networked economy, I think when we looked at the network population, the networked employee base, we will all be so much more connected socially than we can even imagine. And so the idea of working virtually will be commonplace, and the idea of working across generations will be just natural. So that's what I think we'll see, and I think what will be interesting to see is how much more how much more true that becomes as the population grows to where it truly is 50% of the population that currently right now are entering the workforce as a millennial. Thank you very much. Stephen Hunt, talk to me. Predictions? I can give you one minute as well. Go. I think two things. One, I think that the good news is that talent management and workforce management is just going to get better and better because it has to. Um, talent is just going to become scarcer. Uh, this is larger economic trends. It's due to the fact that we didn't have lots of children 30 years ago. <laughs> um, there's nothing we can do to change that. So talent's going to become scarcer. It's becoming more expensive. And if you don't get good at talent management, you're basically going to lose because you're not going to have the people you need to execute it. But if you do get good at it, you're going to win because you're going to attract this scarce, very expensive uh, source and then use it effectively. Also, I want to say really quickly, what's not going to change, and except to Carrie's point about millennials, is the fundamental psychology of people. We don't evolve that fast, and it hasn't changed Mm -hmm. as far as what motivates people at work. Clear set goals that are meaningful, that they understand, being treated with respect as far as effective feedback and guidance, a sense of some sense of stability and challenge in career growth. The basic fundamentals of management have not changed. What's changing is our ability to the importance of them and our ability to really apply them through more effective tools. Thank you very much. Carrie Brown, one one sentence answer. What's in your cup today? Fast. In my cup today, a cup of tea. Okay. What flavor? Quick. Vanilla Robos. Good for Oh, me. I love and it. And yummy. I love it. Stephen Hunt, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking water in anticipation of my first cup of Portland coffee. <laughs> oh, nice. Carrie Brown and Stephen Hunt, thank you so much for being our lead team on this special edition of the Future of Business with Game Changers. We're talking about the Future of Business Arrives in Orlando. It's coming up next week. We're going to take a very fast break. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Vivek Bapat, who was on a recent show, and Dan Wellers, both from SAP, on winning in the networked economy. You don't want to miss this. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Steve. Have a great day. Shout out to Andy Grieg and Dave Fowler, who are tweeting. I'm Bonnie D. Graham will be right back. Don't even think of touching that dial. You wouldn't dare. Bread out. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. Welcome back. Segment two of our special is titled Winning in the Networked Economy. My guests today are on this segment Vivek Bapat, Global VP of Marketing at SAP, and Dan Weller, Senior Director, Strategy and Research at SAP. Vivek, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great, Bonnie. Thanks. Um, great Good. to be on the show again. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to read the quote you sent me, and it's not really a quote you pointed out. It's something called Metcalf's Law. Let me read it, and you'll explain it to me, and then we'll have Dan's opening quote. So so Vivek is quoting Metcalf's Law. The value of a network is proportional to the square of the number of connected users. I wouldn't even begin to ask a question about that because I don't know which end to start at. So, Vivek, why don't you tell us what this has to do with winning in the networked economy? Go, please. I think, uh, thank you, Bonnie, for that. And I think this is a perfect representation of what the network economy is all about. Um, this was essentially a law that was uh, created by Robert Metcalf, who, who was an electronics engineer, also the co-founder of a company that we know, uh, 3Com. Basically, what it means is that whenever there's a network uh, in operation or execution, every addition every person or every device or anything that you actually add to the network ultimately ultimately creates exponential value for the Mm -hmm. other members of the network and so for instance if you have one phone there's no you know there's nobody else to call but now (laughs) if you have two phones um you have somebody else that you can call the moment you add a third phone now you're creating value for three people and so on and so forth so that's, I think, um, the reason why I wanted to uh, get this particular quote out there because it's a great representation of the network it's effect. It's wonderful. We learned something. I don't know anybody who talks in cocktail talk about Metcalf's loss, and now we can. Thank you very much. And I'm going to ask Dan Wellers about his quote. Dan sent me a quote from Albert A. Bartlett, and it is, The greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. Please enlighten me, Dan Wellers. How are you, Dan? I am great, and I would be happy to, Bonnie. Thank you. It's a Thank pleasure you. to be here. Um, first, for those who don't know, it's probably most people, Albert Bartlett was a professor of nuclear physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He just passed away last year, unfortunately. But he worked for decades to explain the concept of exponential growth, uh, its you know, manifestations, and the huge implications of it. Now, his point was about exponential increases in population and the consumption of non-renewable resources and therefore how quickly we could run out. But I like the quote because, you know, while I agree with 
with Bartlett in that respect. I look at it from the point of view of technology advances. Moore's mm-hmm. law originally predicted that computer power would double each year for only 10 years, but Moore was way too conservative. It's been over 40 years that technology has been doubling each year or every 18 months, and there's no end in sight. But our brains are not well-equipped to understand this sustained exponential growth. You get really quickly to huge numbers after doubling like 30 or 40 years times, which we have. We can understand billions, but when we get to trillions, quadrillions, quintillions of connections across the economy, and there's the connection to the networked economy, this is an inflection point where we lose the sense of what's possible with with technology. And it's where we are now, and we have to get our heads around it. Thank you, Dan. Good intro to our topic. Let's talk to Vivek about why the networked economy is so important for business. I know it's the conversion of convergence of social and device and business. Let's talk about this. And Vivek, when you're done, I would like to ask Dan to talk a little bit about some of the special forums and the business challenges they're going to solve at Sapphire now. So Vivek, talk to us. Why is it so critical for businesses to grasp and participate in the networked economy? Yeah, so Bonnie, it's a great question. I think uh, in order to understand the potential of the network economy, I think one of the things we need to do is to just maybe peel back and look at history. And, um, and, and when we look at history from a productivity, from an economic growth perspective, and if you go back maybe 100, 150 years or so, what we've seen is three major inflection points. And what's common across every one of these inflection points was there was an introduction of a basic idea that was then brought to scale, which created opportunities in terms of productivity, jobs, skills, and so on and so forth. So the first one was the invention of the machine and the invention of bringing the machine to scale through mass production. That was basically the industrial economy. The second was the invention of computing. The is basically the invention of computer as a device and bringing computing to the masses at scale. And that was something that we triggered off in the 1970s. Um, you know, and we can, we can refer to that as an inflection point, the, and we created lots of different opportunities for people. Um, we refer to that as the IT economy. The mm-hmm. cycle that we are transitioning away from now is really the Internet economy. And within the Internet economy, again, the simple idea was about communication across computers and devices and so forth, and that was brought to scale through the internet. So when you look at these three inflection points and you project forward, what we're seeing is hyper-connectivity, which is connections not just between people or between devices or between businesses. I think those things have been happening for years. But the big change is now that these connections and this hyper-connectivity is happening Mm -hmm. across people and devices and businesses. And when we look at the magnitude of the opportunities through those connections, we see a new type of economy emerge, which we refer to as the network economy. By some conservative estimates, what we believe is that this particular cycle that we're going to live in for the next maybe 15 years or so is roughly going to triple the type of opportunities that we create for productivity improvement and for increasing the, the, the gross world product. Um, this has profound implications against for businesses. I think, you know, most businesses, there are some businesses, for instance, that are already doing this. But the big implica- implication for businesses is that this is not just a way to increase efficiency in terms of how they do business today, but it offers a platform for fundamental business transformation in the future. 
Thank you very much, Vivek. Good introduction to this topic. Dan Wellers, I know you're involved with the agenda for the Networked Economy Forum. This is such an important topic. There's an entire forum with some outstanding keynotes and authors and people who are leading outstanding in their field, as we like to say. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the business problems you're going to be addressing in this forum at Sapphire now, please. Yeah, absolutely. And let me set a little context to connect it with what uh, Vivek just said. It's really crucial that companies or organizations of all kinds understand the the importance of these in, in, in inflection points and understanding what is going on in the networked economy now. It's not it's not really a choice. You can't choose to be in it. You are in it, mm-hmm. but you can choose to take advantage of it. And you've got to understand the opportunities going forward, as well as actions to take today. And that can be really complicated. So to help with this, we've put together the Network Economy Forum, as you said, at Sapphire Now on Tuesday of next week, June 3rd, to bring together ideas from thought leaders, consultants, authors, research, academia, leading companies, as well as experts from SAP. So so here are three quick examples of, of business needs and areas that we'll cover at the forum. First, businesses, organizations of all type, really need to understand the causes and the effects of this these exponential this exponential rise in the wave of digital tech technologies, the huge shifts in productivity and profits and investments and the effect on employment and jobs, and also the the opportunities and the risks for individuals and for businesses and for society at large in this. Our keynote speaker for the forum is Eric Bernolfsson, is the author of the Second Machine Age. Director of the MIT Center for, for, for Digital Business, Chairman of the MIT Sloan Management Review. Um, and he's going to cover this in his address as well as things like the rise of machine intelligence and how analytics is transforming everything and what this means for the economy as a whole. The conversation around the forum is on the economic implications of all of this. And he'll do this further in a panel discussion as well. Number two. Um, there's new research out from the McKinsey Global Institute around the, 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 how the flows of goods and services and capital around the world have doubled in the past 10 to 12 years, now over $26 trillion worth. Over half of those flows are knowledge-intensive flows. And digitization is also transforming these flows among other things, enabling small and medium businesses to instantly and inexpensively become global players. So what are the economic and social implications, and what are the challenges, and how do organizations navigate these flows to stay afloat? We'll, we'll hear about this from Michael Chewy, who is a partner from the McKinsey Global Institute and, and was one of the leaders of this study. And third is the area of business strategy. The, the networked economy has had dramatic effects on strategy especially when you think about you know, the standard choices that we know of operational excellence, product leadership, customer intimacy, and how to do innovation. And while these areas aren't new, what is new is how these technologies are redefining them. Innovation, for example, is now digitally mediated through things like crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, uh, contests, idea markets. Mm-hmm. Customer intimacy has become collective intimacy. Product leadership has become solution leadership. So these have completely changed the economics behind these choices. And we have Joe Weinman, who is the author of a brand-new book called Cloudonomics, 
which, as you can tell by its title, also discusses the role of the cloud, com- cloud computing in this, mm-hmm. uh, to discuss this and the importance and the implications of the networked economy and how to set business, um, the direction of your business. So there's a, there's a, a lot more discussions on new business models, you know, real examples in cities and retail and logistics. I'll Thank stop there. You, Dan. We'd love it if people would join us. So. Well, I'm sure they will. This is very exciting. We have about a minute and a half left to this segment, so I want to get an opportunity to have Vivek Bapat tell us future of winning in the networked economy. Fast forward to 2020. In one sentence, Vivek, I'm really going to hold you tight to this because we're out of time. In one sentence, what will happen in the next six years to the networked economy? What will it take to win? All right, I'll give you three sentences. Go. Um, so I, I'm an eternal optimist, and I am very, very optimistic about the future in which this world operates. Um, I think the network economy offers an opportunity to solve some of the biggest problems that we've faced as a society, both uh, from a work perspective, from a personal life perspective, as well as from a, from a trade perspective. So I'll just leave it at that, but uh, I'm very, very optimistic about the future. Good. We love optimism. And Dan Wellers, I'll give you two sentences, the future of networked economy. What will it take to to be in it and win it in six years? Go. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And I am also optimistic, but I think in six years that this idea of of hyper-transparency is going to be everyone's waking assumption every morning that your default state is that the majority of everything you do is going to be going to be tracked and cataloged and searchable. There's huge implications for that. Great business opportunity, customer intimacy, value chain stuff, all the data and analytics. Um, but the interesting question is, how is that going to change our behavior? For the better, for the worse? Not at all. It's a whole Thank different Thank you, Dan. Hold that thought. Question. Vivek, what are you drinking? And then Dan, I give you each 10 seconds. Go. Vivek, what are you um, drinking in your cup? Yeah, I'm drinking Audacio, which is a Nespresso Virtual Line product. And the interesting thing is this is a network economy product. It has a digital ah. code in it, which actually tells the brewer exactly how to brew this particular cup of coffee. So I just You're walking the walk, you're talking the talk, and you're drinking the cup. I appreciate that. Dan Wellers, what's in your cup? Fast, go. That's very cool. A combination, a 50-50 combination of Pete's Major Dickinson blend coffee and Ovaltine. Oh, you're a brave man. I love the Ovaltine part. It all sounds good, actually. I drink Pete's Vivek Bapat and Dan Willis. Thank you so much for being my guest on the second segment of this very special special. It is The Future of Business Arrives in Orlando. All the best to both of you. Have a great time in Orlando at Sapphire Now next week. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. When we come back, we approach Cloud 2020. That's my favorite year with Joe Fuster and Keith Hunt. We'll be right back after the break. Don't even touch that dial. Brad, out. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. Of business arrives in Orlando next week, June 3rd. Can you believe it's June almost already? That's my OMG today. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is the future of business with Game Changers presented by SAP Services. This segment is called Cloud 2020, and my special guests are Joe Fuster. He's the global head of SAP's customer engagement team, and he's joined by Keith Hans, global vice president within the SAP customer line of business organization. So, Joe Fuster, welcome. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Wonderful. You sound great. Let me read your opening quote, and let's get started. You say, our customers can no longer manage their customers. Hmm. Customer relationship management is an obsolete market segment. Wow, that's disruptive, Joe. The future of this market is omni-channel commerce, where every individual customer is treated and supported as an individual. What an interesting concept. Joe Foster, talk to me. You know, Bonnie, this idea that we all want to be treated as individuals just seems like good old plain-fashioned common sense. And Mm -hmm. for the longest time, we talked about it as a business theory, but the systems couldn't keep up with it. And what's going on now and what the cloud has really brought upon us is it is very possible to disseminate all of this information about all of us as individuals right at the point of interaction. And hence this uh, idea of omnichannel is now not just a business theory, but it's real. You and I can start any interaction in any channel and go complete it in another, right? So you're at home, you're at work, you're in your car, you're somewhere waiting, and you're on your smartphone or your your browser, and quickly you go look at something of interest, right? You continue with your day, you catch a gap between radio shows, you catch a gap between meetings and businesses, you, you take another quick peek at something. You're on your way home and you're off to complete your transaction. And you could be in every different channel simultaneously. So it's really very interesting because we do have the ability now for all of us to be treated as individuals, whether it's uh, in the consumer sense or whether it's in the B2B to C sense. It works both ways. Interesting, Joe. We used to poke fun, I think, at the me generation. Me, now, I wanted, you know, the make, now we're back to make for me, and it's a good thing. It's something people are looking forward to. So I, I sense this is full circle, and, you know, uh, there's a French phrase I love. It's plus ça change, plus la même chose. More things change, the more they stay the same. So we're back to the individual. Isn't that refreshing? Let's talk to Keith Hans. Keith sent me the following quote. Creating a customer-driven enterprise in today's digital age comes with a whole new set of challenges. And I'm going to stop right there and ask Keith to tell us what those challenges are. Good morning, Keith. How are you? Good morning, Bonnie, and thanks for the opportunity to join the SAP radio show. And much like Joe's quote, I think my quote really encapsulates, I think, what we're seeing as far as megatrends in our industry, what we affectionately like to refer to as the empowered customer of today's digital age. And, you know, we're seeing that convergence of social, mobile, big data, and cloud now enabling consumers, kids, teenagers, adults of all ages, really, to be more mobile, to be more digitally connected, more socially networked and informed than ever before. And, and it kind of reminds me of, of the last car purchase. You know, when you think about 57% of the buying process is already done by the time you have your first interaction with a salesperson. You know, and you, so you think about, you know, you knew exactly how much the dealer paid for the vehicle that you were test driving, how much your car was worth from a trade-in perspective, and what other recent buyers have said about their buying purchase online. 
And so you think about that and, and the Internet commerce uh, emergence back in 90s, uh, thinking that buying a car online was the number one most desired retail transaction because of unfavorable experiences in a dealership. And now transacting business via the cloud uh, and buying direct from a manufacturer in the area of, let's say, a Tesla, like I know a lot of our listeners out there may be considering. I mean, that omnichannel mm-hmm. commerce trend, I think, is going to continue well beyond 2020 uh, in a whole new way. Very exciting. A uh, quick question for you, Keith. Is, is omnichannel commerce, are we talking about about a specific part of the buying community or a, a generation? You know where I'm going with this. Is this something that will be embraced by, let's say, the younger half of the workforce who have money to burn or, or people in the older half who, uh, who are no longer working but have disposable income? Who will embrace omnichannel? I'm just worried, wondering about where is this going in terms of what part of the population will say, wow, this is for me. How savvy do you need to be to take advantage? Quickly, what do you see? I think it's highly prolific. I think about, you know, my kids and, and the second screen and, and the screenagers, as we call them. They're never far <laughs> from their, their cell phones, and, and that is their number one communication device. And I also think about now, you know, as I, as I travel uh, the world in, in support of SAP's mission, you know, I see, you know, just as many iPhones in the hands of business people. And, and now that we're, you know, offering you know, business people and and, um, and stay-at-home moms the ability to use their iPhone to to buy groceries uh, online or buy them off of a kiosk, as we're doing with the co-op at home folks. I'm seeing every aspect of it, every generation really taking advantage of the new mobile and digital age, and and it's and it's impacting how customers want to engage with their uh, customers. You know, in, in ways that they've never never dreamed of. And you think about the very first purchase online being uh, a Pizza Hut pizza. Yeah, go figure. It's, it's come a long, long way since then. Uh, but I think that this is really uh, age-independent uh, and industry-independent as well. Thank you very much. I know both you, uh, Keith Hans and Joe Fuster, have some great case studies. We have eight minutes left till the end of the segment. So I want to make sure we get some of those in. Joe Fuster, why don't you talk to me about the new now, and it's about the use case dummy. And then let's talk a little bit about, I know you have a great case study on Luxottica. So why don't you talk to me about that, bring in that case, and then we'll have Keith talk about some of his cases, Coke Freestyle, and we have Amazon and uh, T-Mobile, Zappos. So Joe Fuster, give me your favorite key, your favorite. Foster case study, and then we'll turn to Keith. Well, I, I think the very top of uh, the list with this idea that it starts with a customer insight, we have uh, experience with a retailer that is in Southeast Asia, and they are in a very well-to-do affluent area. But the fashion trends tend to follow what happened in, uh, in, in Paris and Rome and, and London, Madrid. And so it's, a, it's an eyeglass manufacturer, right? It's sunglasses. And what they mm-hmm. have done is they have started to use this idea about what's that buying uh, experience, but more importantly, what are people buying when? Because they find their markets lag roughly three months. And what they have the opportunity now to do is change the retail displays in Singapore to reflect the latest trends that are coming out of Western Europe. And in doing so, they are actually coming in very quickly with insights about style and fit and lifestyle and, and mixing up, again, the retail experience just within 60 and 90 days. And they're doing this across millions of customers. So this idea that they can have a theory, segment it, test it, and bring it out to market within, within the same quarter in a different part of the world is becoming very real. And, you know, I, I always say it's about the use case. If we think about some of the things that all of us know how to do empirically that uh, 
actually make us very happy. My favorite one to talk about is the ATM machine. The ATM, the use case there, you, me, and everybody else want to put a card in and get some money out. And they're mm-hmm. advanced enough to know where I'm standing, so what kind of money should come out. And it doesn't matter if I speak the language or not. As long as I can get that PIN code correct, it works out. You know, that use case is very uncomplicated. And when does that ATM mm-hmm. annoy me? It annoys me when it tries to do more than it should, right? It, it annoys yeah. me when it tries to offer me a loan that I'm not interested in. Or it annoys me when it asks me if I want to refinance. I just want my money. So this idea, again, about getting the use case dummy correct is what's the actual end customer expectation and how do I do just that? Give them exactly what they want. And it really kind of comes all the way back to this idea Then all of this theory is start with an insight. Every one of us would like to know how we compare to others. All of us would like to know how my business profiles compared to another. And if you start the interaction with me with an insight, it means I'm being treated as an individual. And, boy, I'm much more interested in working with you from that point forward. So I really Thank think- you. Thank you, Joe. I was we have to give time to Keith, but I was going to say that I'm waiting for the ATM to know that Bonnie's tired of getting just twenties when she <laughs> takes money out. I want some tens once in a while. Please <laughs> ask me if I want tens. Imagine that, Keith Hans. I want to talk about. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's do some of your favorite case studies and the import. Let's focus on. Tell us how we're doing. The importance of driving a customer-driven culture focused around their experience now and in the future. Talk to me about T-Mobile and Zappos, if you will. Sure thing. And I actually would like 50s and 100s out of the ATM. I love the <laughs> case example on the ATM machine. And, and we're starting to see a whole host of new use cases, a whole host of new, if you will, um, you know, engagement models. And, and so the use case around, I think, T-Mobile, which is a super exciting one, is when you think about how many email and phone surveys you get on a regular basis, it's now really mission critical to think about the customer experience. What are they saying about you? You know, over 50% of customers abandon an in-store purchase due to negative online sentiment. And now folks are willing to try a new brand for better service. So it's not surprising when you think about T-Mobile. So they're going to be actually presenting next week at Sapphire on their use of social customer engagement and how they're furthering their brand and delivering on their promise of the, what they're calling the uncarrier. They've got 17 call centers. They have a dedicated team just all around listening, engaging, and resolving customer issues and leveraging social media channels. They were just recognized last week at Gartner as a top uh, vendor in the industry for social support. And a Thursday at 2.30 in the line of business theater is, is a great um, is a great presentation. They'll talk about how they're resolving 97% of issues, and they're also reducing calls by 91%. And then, of course, there's Zappos and many other great examples. They actually believe talking to customers, go figure, is the best way still to find out you know, how well they're doing. And, and they have uh, some of their customer service agents have recorded some of the longest calls in the customer service industry, over an hour in some cases, just to find mm. out how well they're doing with the average woman Go figure buying a dozen pair of shoes uh, over the Internet and taking advantage of free shipping both ways and really taking that online shoe business to the next level, a billion plus. And they actually are, are sharing their, those insights in terms of how to drive a customer-driven culture and better service customers with you know, a, uh, a Zappos Insight um, corporate training program that they've offered. So exciting, uh, exciting news there, and that total commitment to uh, to that customer-driven culture. And there's others, you know, like Coca-Cola and, and even SAP. As we've rolled out, you know, 17,000 iPads, we've really changed the game in terms of customer engagement with this digital age. When I think about the 300 compact iPads that we rolled out, 
you know, SAP is also going to be talking about how we run our own software at, at SAP to, to better engage with, with our customers and, and leverage cloud as well. Thank you, Keith. Great points all. Love the case studies. I'm going to give each of you about 30 seconds to tell me, Cloud 2020, predict what it will be like in 2020. Joe Fuster, talk to me. I think in 2020, it's going to be ubiquitous. We're going to talk to our house. We're going to talk to our car. We're going to talk to uh, our wrist because we're going to have a a wearable computer on. And we're not going to think twice about the fact that all of these things will sense our presence and that automatic sensing will then do all sorts of wonderful things for us. So I think what we're going to see is wearable computers and computers we talk to pretty much interwoven into every aspect of our daily lives. Thank you very much. And Keith, what do you project? What do you project for 2020? Yeah, I, I would say I, w- I would completely agree with Joe's thoughts in terms of you think about you know 90% of American adults have a cell phone, 58% uh, have a smartphone, and that was just as of January of this year. And you think about the billion plus units sold in 2013, 42% increase. So you start to think, you know, by the time you know, 2020 hits, uh, there's no question in my mind that, you know, tablets will uh, fully take over the uh, the traditional laptop and certainly the wearable uh, computing and the Internet of Things, if you will. Uh, you start to see things like FedEx SensorWare allowing a steakhouse restaurant to track the meat temperature on the trip from Argentina versus just the expected delivery days. So those types of things I think we're going to see as, as mainstream. Thank you very much. I have a quick question. I need a one-sentence answer. Joe Fuster, what's in your cup today? Uh, Starbucks via a couple scoops of protein, banana, skim milk, blend it all up. It's a great way to start today. You're a brave soul. Sounds delicious, actually. I have a banana shake, but no coffee in it, and maybe I should add it. And Keith Hans, what are you drinking right now? You know, I typically go with the hazelnut four splenda half and half. I branched out today with my colleague who's here from Chicago, Vente Cafe Mocha, but I'm telling you, Nespresso is my new future. That's what I'll be drinking in 2020. They're presenting next week at Sapphire about the perfect cup Wednesday at 1 p.m. I highly suggest you take a, take a look at it. Thank you very much. I'll tell, uh, I'll tell the lady who sells Nespresso on TV you'll be visiting her very, very soon. I'm sure, she'll be del- I'm sure she'll be delighted, and so will you. Thank you very much, Joe Foster and Keith Hans, for being my third set of guests, my third panel here on Cloud 2020. We're on our 13th show in a 13-week series called Future of Business with Game Changers. Our special today is looking at the future of business arrives in Orlando just days from now. Coming back after a very quick break with Shuchi Sharma, Global Head of Business. Business Transformation Services, Market Development at SAP, joined by Richard Stratner, Service Marketing Director. We'll be talking about all kinds of interesting things happening at Sapphire now. You don't want to miss this preview. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back after the break. Hang around. Red out. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you. 
Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to The Future of Business with Game Changers. Are. We're talking right now about design thinking and transformation with Shuchi Sharma, Global Head of Business Transformation Services Market Development at SAP, and Richard Stratner, Services Marketing Director. Shuchi, welcome. And I have a quote from you from Mahatma Gandhi. Let me read it. Why don't you tell us how this applies to our topic? You say, be the change you want to see in the world. Welcome, Shuchi. How are you? I'm good, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for joining me. Finally, you've been trying, we're trying to get you on a show for a while, and here you are. So how does Mahatma Gandhi's quote apply to our topic I'm discussing with you and Richard on design thinking and transformation? Go ahead. Well, you know, design thinking, it's a methodology and a discipline to really promote change and innovation. And it is all about doing it yourself. I mean, you have to... Um, it's not something that is just going to happen organically. One has to be a proactive agent in making that happen. And the design thinking methodology, a very human-centered approach to design, is a way, a way to do that, to come up with new and innovation, innovative solutions that may not have been part of the uh, mindset previously. And it's a way to just create and foster positive change. Wonderful. And we're all looking for positive change. That's what it's all about. And that's what we hope the future will bring. Thank you. Let me ask Richard Stratner, Services Marketing Director at SAP. Richard, you sent me a very interesting and brief quote, very concise. Make your dreams a reality. Is this a subset of Mahatma Gandhi's quote? I I wish I could claim that. No, it is a subset of perhaps my own brain. I I I like that. The the way that it relates to to what we're talking about right now and the overall services business is oftentimes, you know, people are presented with um, exciting ideas. Certainly in the world of technology, we're offered up uh, remarkable things. But what makes services compelling uh, to me and, and in my daily life also is that it's the means by which we take those concepts and make them real. You know, we don't just say this could be. It, it's the nuts and bolts. It's how things actually happen on the ground, and, and it's, it informs a lot of what I do. Okay, thank you very much. And let's dive right into We have a very short segment right now. We've got about eight minutes left total, so we're really going to compress this. Let's talk about design thinking methodology. Shuchi, you want to start us off with a little bit of an intro to this? And, Richard, I want you to chime in so we get a really robust definition and people understand what they can see and hear at Sapphire. So go ahead, Shuchi. Design thinking sure. methodology, what is it? Well, Bonnie, it's a it's a methodology that's actually not new, but is certainly gaining momentum and becoming a part of many corporate cultures. And it's basically a human-centered approach to design. It's a discipline that matches people's needs with what is really feasible from a technology perspective and then what can also develop into a viable business model that really takes those ideas and converts them to value for the customer. Uh, Keith and Joe talked a lot about 
helping customers think about their customers and embracing the convergence of technology that allows them to be a part of this networked economy we're seeing grow and expand at a very unprecedented rate. That's creating all sorts of new business models for customers. And in order to take advantage of that and and change within your organization, um, design thinking is a way that really breaks the mold and helps organizations think out of the box to embrace some of these new innovations that can take their business forward into the next phase of growth. Thank you. Richard Stratner, thoughts on what Suchi said and your thoughts about is design thinking for every company? Is it something every company can understand and embrace and put the right people at the table in the think tank, if you will, to make it beneficial? What, what's your perspective on that? I think, I think it is applicable across all, uh, all businesses, industries, geographies, because at its core, um, you know, a company may have a, a particular uh, service or product that they're offering, but it's, it's, it's core content is really, it's, 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 uh, it's the human element. It's, it's workforce. And, um, Utilizing something like design thinking to to tap on uh, tap from a, a number of different resources within that company and bring forward those elements that in a collective can help a company move forward or take that next step is 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 a, is a universal concept and I think so consequently it does have have broad applicability. Okay, and thank you very much. Yeah, go ahead, Shushi. Mm-hmm. One of the main tenets I just want to emphasize is that it's empathetic. It really focuses mm-hmm. on what is right for the customer uh, and what is right from a human perspective. And I think that's one of the most important things that can often get lost as we uh, embrace technology. People will create solutions that are just perhaps not entirely user-friendly, but this really brings back the focus to what a person would actually benefit from. Thank you very much. I, I also notice here in your notes, Sushi, you say that it's different from what's just cool about technology. It's what is the human aspect of design. So you're bringing people into the design equation early on. That's a great point. Richard Stratner, I want to talk a little bit about the value in, in how do you sell services versus a piece of software in terms of live engagements. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, you know, it's an interesting concept because oftentimes, um, you know, a piece of software is something that you can demonstrate. You can touch it. You can feel it. But a service is so often uh, associated with a, a human engagement, be it from a, a consultant to an organization or within an, or, an organization. So what, what makes what we're doing at Sapphire next week so compelling is, is that we're, we're effectively providing a demonstration, a 45-minute a, a brief um, interaction with the design thinking concept. So over the course of the Sapphire, three times per day, we'll be running design thinking workshops that are about 45 minutes to give people a sense of what they're like. And I, I think what makes them most compelling is they're not simply a presentation of this is what design thinking is. We're actually going through exercises with case studies for those who attend to get a sense to touch and feel what this could be like were a full design thinking engagement be enacted at their organization. Richard, for somebody to participate, what should they come prepared to expect? And what kind of mindset, what kind of tools, it, it, mental tools or empathetic tools, Shushi brought, brought in that concept of design thinking, what would somebody need? They just walk in and say, okay, teach me design thinking, I'm here. Or what do they need to do to prepare for this? Give us an idea, please. Actually, I think, I think it's, it's less about preparation and more about emptying your mind, being open to new ah. ideas. Oftentimes, our uh, facilitators, our, our design thinking leaders, will present a concept to a, uh, a group of participants and then 
push them and, and move them towards thinking about ideas that would never have otherwise come up. And that's really what we're trying to achieve with a design thinking workshop. Rather than trying to make the next um, logical step, if you will, or the next incremental change, thinking about something that could be totally transformative. So for those planning to attend, there are specific topics that will be covered, but we'll be looking to the organizations that are participating to, to kind of bring some of their own perspective from their either business mm -hmm. or, or geography, but coming with as open a mind as possible. Shuchi, do you agree? Anything you want to add? Because I'm just about ready to wrap and ask the two of you to project ahead to the year 2020 what design thinking will look like. So, Shuchi, anything you want to add for people planning to participate in design thinking workshops at Sapphire Now? Bonnie, couldn't have said it better myself. Richard is, is spot on. It's really about being open um, and just willing to take in the new and different and embrace it. Okay, so let's fast forward to the year 2020. Shuchi Sharma, what will design thinking look like in six years from right now? Good question, Bonnie. I think it's going to be a very well-recognized and often-used methodology. I think as ideas become so much easier to copy and exploit, companies are going to realize that, you know what, we need to have a solid innovation process in order to continually differentiate, and this is just going to be one of the many um, techniques and methods that they use and look for in their employees to continue on that path. Thank you very much. Richard Stratner, I can give you, oh, just about 30 seconds. Projections, please. Go ahead. 30 seconds design thinking will be uh, a core element of all business processes because as we were talking about in the earlier segment, you'll have the ubiquity of the cloud. Technology will be more prevalent. So it's more about the ideas than it is about the bits and bytes. So I foresee this to be a, a critical element of all organizations come 2020. Thank you. Shuchi, what's in your cup? Give me one sentence. Go. Coffee, Bonnie. Really good oh, coffee. Good coffee. That's the best kind. I love it. Richard Stratner, what are you drinking right now? Talk to me fast. I am in New York, and we drink bad coffee, but lots of it. <laughs> I am too, but I make my own, and I try to mitigate that a little bit. Thank you, Shuchi Charma. I hope I pronounced your name right, my dear. And Richard Stratner, I welcome both of you, and thank you so much for being my fourth panel on this marathon we've been doing called Future of Business Arrives in Orlando on June 3rd. Quick shout-outs to Kerry Brown, Dr. Stephen Hunt, Vivek Bapat, Dan Wellers, Joe Fuster, Keith Hunts, Shuchi Charma, and Richard Stratner for being my guests on I Just Thought This Went Great. I hope you did, too. Dave Fowler and Andy Grieg at SAP Services, thanks for tweeting. And Dave Fowler, you've been a marvelous, marvelous colleague to work with on this series. We're ending Future of Business with Game Changers, but never fear. Dave is coming back with a new twist on the future of business. Yeah, we'll twist away in the fall of 2014. Thank you also to Malcolm Kimberlin along the way for helping with guest engagement. Brad and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio, you rock. Thanks for keeping us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. It's been a pleasure and an enlightenment to work on this series for the past 13 weeks. There'll be more coming. Stay tuned, and we'll be having a whole bunch of new series coming at the end of the year. Here's my call to action for everybody going to, to Sapphire now. Take heart. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go to Orlando next week and be a game changer that day and in the future. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.